You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I were lucky enough to have Jason Larkin back in the discussion. Jason brings almost a decade of consulting experience to the table, and he's pretty fun to talk to. Today, we will be covering goodwill impairment, and we've previously released an episode about non-financial asset impairment. Goodwill impairment is a beast of its own, especially since there are some potential changes that may be coming down the pipeline. Adam will hit on these throughout the episode to help our listeners start thinking about what the future may hold for goodwill impairments. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson, and somehow Jason Larkin snuck back into the room. Right. No, just kidding. (laughs) Jason's very welcomed, wise, and we're glad he's here. He is our managing director here in Dallas, and it is a treat to have him on another episode where we will be talking about goodwill impairment. And we'll start off with what should be an easy question, but is probably more complicated than you'd expect. So, Adam, nah. what is goodwill? <laughs> yeah, this is always the, like, million-dollar question because I think it depends, like, you could ask five different people in the same room and everyone will probably have a little bit of a different answer. How I think about it, and I think a lot of people do from, like, an economic perspective is that, you know, goodwill is often described as really, like, it's the established reputation of the company. It's the management team. It's the future growth of that company, it's company culture, it could be the company's identity, corporate identity, Um, it could be intangible assets that maybe aren't, you know, inseparable from the business itself. So if you think about like, all the skilled workforce that they may have, um, and all the institutional knowledge that those people may have. So it, you know, it's a culmination of a lot of different things, you know, it's very abstract, you know, when you think when people often talk about goodwill, um, however, U.S. GAAP obviously has a definition. Um, so from a U.S. GAAP perspective, you know, it really represents the future economic benefits um, that arise from other assets acquired in a business combination that essentially are not individually identified and separated. Um, so in other words, when you think about a business combination, you know, goodwill is the residual you know, consideration that's paid once you've assigned that consideration to all the other assets and liabilities in the transaction. Um, which are usually based on their acquisition date, you know, fair values. Um, So I think one thing that's important is that a company can only have goodwill if they've actually had a business combination because it's the only only type of transaction that can generate goodwill. So is that a fancy way of saying this is the plug? (laughs) (laughs) Assuming everything else is correct, yes, it is the plug. Yes. Well, can you give us an overview of how accounting for goodwill currently works? And that's a little teaser for a discussion happening later in the podcast. You know, ASC 350 is kind of the section of the codification that provides all the accounting for goodwill. So under the current standard, goodwill is not amortized. You know, if you've asked someone that's been in accounting for a while, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. So... Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of look at the, the history of goodwill and how we've accounted for it. Um, but rather, you know, goodwill is subject to periodic impairment testing. So it does have an annual requirement. And, you know, in some cases, there could also be kind of interim tests of goodwill um, based on certain triggering events. You know, an entity will first assess, you know, qualitative factors to determine whether or not a quantitative test for goodwill is necessary. So 
Um, you know, further testing is only required if an entity determines that based on its qualitative assessment that it's more likely not, than not that the reporting unit's fair value is less than its carrying amount. Otherwise, no impairment testing is performed. People have the option to bypass that kind of qualitative, you know, assessment. It's often referred to as like a step zero test um, that companies will do from time to time and just go straight to the quantitative test. And actually, the FASB, you know, back in 2017, they actually issued a stand, you know, an ASU and accounting standard update, you know, 2017-04 that really helped to simplify goodwill uh, impairment testing. Um, and under that, you know, simplification, it basically, you know, changed goodwill from a two-step impairment to a one-step impairment. So for those of you that may not be familiar with kind of what the, the two-step impairment test was, um, you essentially had to, you know, test goodwill for impairment in step one by comparing the fair value of the reporting unit to its carrying value. If the fair value didn't exceed the carrying value, then you moved into step two, which essentially required you to do a hypothetical purchase price allocation. So you're kind of applying the business combination guidance by taking the fair value of the reporting unit and then allocating that fair value to all the assets and liabilities in that reporting unit to get the implied fair value of goodwill. And then you would have to compare that to the carrying amount of the goodwill, and that would be your impairment loss. It's a lot of steps. People, you know, it was painful for <laughs> yeah. sure. If you had to move into that step two process, it was timely, it was expensive. Um, so the simplification was definitely well, well welcomed. So aside from making our lives much better, what else does the ASU change in the goodwill impairment framework? Yeah, so like I said, it eliminates step two, which, you know, very nice to have that. Um, so essentially, you're just going to do step one, you know, you do, you measure the fair value of that reporting unit, you compare it to its carrying value, any difference between, um, you know, the, if the fair value is less, any difference between those two is going to be your impairment charge. Um, obviously, you can't write goodwill down, you know, below zero, so it can only go down to as much goodwill as you have. Um, and so that simplification guidance, you know, like I said, it came out in 2017. Um, it was effective for private, or excuse me, public companies um, in 2020. So for calendar year and, you know, public companies, most already went ahead and early adopted it once it was available because who's going to turn down, <laughs> <Why not? Yeah. laughs> turn down simplification? Um, but for those that maybe haven't on the private company side, it is effective in 2023, but, you know, in most cases, or many cases, I would say, most private companies are already applying that simplified model. All right, and we'll operate under that assumption that everyone is using that model for yeah. the rest of the, yeah. the conversation. Sure. So Jason, if we're beginning our assessment of goodwill impairment, where do we start? Yeah, so I think in step one, from a process perspective, there's really four steps that we have to go through. The first is you need to identify those reporting units. So that's gonna be our unit of account as we move through the rest of the framework. So really important, go through, identify your reporting units. Then you need to assign assets and liabilities to each of those reporting units. Then you need to assign all of the goodwill to each of the reporting units. And finally, fourth step, you need to determine that fair value of the reporting units, because ultimately, as, as Adam said, we're gonna compare the fair value to the carrying value of each of those reporting units. So those are the four steps. And we actually had you on the segment reporting episode talking about reporting units. So apparently we think that's the only thing you know. <laughs> Shameless plug yeah. for our uh, yeah. other Segment podcast. reporting <laughs> episode, yeah. 
for those who maybe haven't listened to that one or need a little refresher, could you go through what it means when we say reporting unit? Yeah, so I think as we laid out in the segment reporting, you know, really as we think about 280, which is the segment reporting standard, that really helps define how companies need to evaluate and determine what their operating segments are. Mm -hmm. And the reason that there's a, a real tie in between operating segments and what we talked about on the segment podcast versus what we're doing today is really the reporting units end up being at or one level below the operating segments. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to think about that based on how the codification describes it is it's a component of an operating segment. So each reporting unit ends up being a component of that operating segment, which again, just to reiterate, at or one level below the operating segment. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately then once you identify what are all those components, you would then look at is there a way to aggregate any of those um, components into one reporting unit based on similar economic characteristics. So that's really important to think about. Um, when we go through these components, there's a couple things and this will sound familiar for those of you who have listened to the segment podcast. When you think about the component, it's gotta have discrete financial information mm -hmm. that's available for the segment manager to review, and it's gotta be a business as defined by ASC 805. Okay, so once we have all of our reporting units, the next step you said was assigning the assets and liabilities to each of those reporting units. How does an entity figure out which assets or liabilities should be assigned to which reporting unit? Yep. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight at the outset, we said assign assets and liabilities, not assign all, because mm -hmm. there can be situations where you have assets and liabilities that ultimately don't get assigned to any reporting unit. You think about a corporate headquarters, corporate debt, those may be indicate, you know, certain items that may not be assigned to the reporting units. But when you are looking at which assets and liabilities to assign to a reporting unit, there's a couple of criteria that are laid out in the guidance. The first is you need to really think about the assets that are employed and the liabilities that relate to that reporting unit's operations. We go back to what is a reporting unit? It's a business, mm -hmm. um, you know, as defined by 805. So there's going to be assets and liabilities that comprise that business. Those that are you know, directly related to that would be allocated to that reporting unit. Mm -hmm. The other thing is um, you really need to align the assets and liabilities you're assigning to the reporting units with what the framework is around determining that fair value. Because ultimately, um, you know, as, a, as we, Adam and I have both said, we're going to get to comparing the carrying value to the fair value, and so we want to have apples to apples. So you think about what assets and liabilities are on the fair value side when we determine fair value. Those need to be the assets and liabilities that get assigned to each of the reporting units. Makes sense. How does the assignment of an entity's goodwill get allocated out among the reporting units? Yeah, so ultimately we do have a little bit of um, optionality within the guidance, which I think is nice because you know there's multiple ways in which goodwill gets created. There's multiple things that might result in goodwill. And so I think the, the different methods within the guidance are important. I think one overall framework that's I think prevalent in a lot of a lot of gap, but I think is important is in this context, is it needs to be reasonable, supportable, and applied in a consistent manner. So we think about how good will gets allocated. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Generally a good framework yeah. to operate under. Yeah. And this is this is no different. So as we um, think about the two different methodologies that we have, the first is the acquisition method. So you think about, as Adam said, goodwill is created as a result of a business acquisition. So if you have a acquisition that ultimately creates a new reporting unit mm -hmm. and there's goodwill as a result of that, 
that goodwill is likely going to be attributable just to that reporting unit because um, you know there's assets and liabilities that are distinct that are allocated or assigned to a specific reporting unit. That goodwill would would follow and and be assigned to that similar reporting unit. The other methodology or approach that's outlined in the guidance is the with or without method, and this is really important when you have a situation where you have an acquisition, but there are synergies where other reporting units might benefit from that acquisition. So you think about, you know, we acquired company A, but, you know, within our wholly owned portfolio, we have another company that's going to benefit. Well, you would look at in the with and without method, what is the fair value of that existing reporting unit Mm -hmm. before and after the acquisition? And if there's an increase in fair value as a result of that acquisition, you may need to assign a portion of the goodwill to that other reporting unit as well. So two methodologies, acquisition method and the with and without method. On that note, what are the ways a company typically measures the fair value of its reporting units? Yep. Yeah, so I think from a fair value perspective, and this is, you know, we're going we're gonna to go back to 820 and think about just general fair value principles here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the FASB doesn't prescribe a specific way that you have to do this. There are some considerations that you have to look at when you're determining fair value. The highest um, or sort of best use that, or best determination of fair value that companies often look at is, you know, the quoted market price, right? If you're actively marketing a reporting unit, there is market prices with active participants, that's a very good indicator of fair value. Oftentimes that doesn't exist, but it is something that you wanna really pause and think about, do we actually have that? Mm -hmm. If you don't have those quoted market prices, then really you begin to look at the income approach next, which is looking at um, how you determine the fair value based on cash flow projections of that particular reporting unit. So you think about for this reporting unit that we've determined as a business, what do we project as our cash flows? And that's a determining factor in what that fair value is. Um, One of the things to consider is what might be included in those projections internally. So if I'm an organization and I have a reporting unit and I have planned acquisitions or planned events into the future, Mm -hmm. those would need to be pulled out of this projection to determine for the income approach. You would only want to contemplate the actual reporting unit as it exists today when you're thinking about the income approach. Another approach that's out there is the market approach, right? So if there's similar businesses or similar transactions that you're aware of in the market, that may be another indicator of fair value that you can utilize as a company when ultimately determining what your fair value is for each of those reporting units. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, there's a lot of work. Yeah, that's, that's a big, a lot of estimating judgment. So mm-hmm. that's what valuation specialists. Yeah. Are there you go. So they'll, just... they'll definitely help you know help you through most of that process. Obviously, management has some assumptions they need to come up with, but you know, when in doubt, don't go alone. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, how often does an entity have to test for goodwill impairment? Yep. So at least annually, you need to assess for impairment. So as, as you think about determining what your annual impairment date is, you would want to set that and then on a recurring basis each year, go through that impairment analysis. Um, in addition to that annual requirement, you do also need to think about were there triggering events that would give rise to needing to assess outside of just my you know, annual impairment period. Um, 
you know, we think about a lot of companies went through that with COVID, right? Or other specific discrete events that would give rise to, is my goodwill potentially impaired and do I need to, to reassess, but at least annually. And how does a company determine what date to perform that actual annual impairment test on? I'm going to send this one to Adam because Jason just <laughs> <Yeah>. keeps talking. <laughs> yeah, so the standard actually allows flexibility for an entity to select the date that they want to do their annual impairment test on. So, you know, you could even have different dates for different reporting units, which you don't often see, but that is an option. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, most will generally perform their impairment tests for all reporting units on the same date. Um, a few things that companies tend to think about when they're trying to select a date is just other, you know, obligations for reporting that they may have. So whether it's external or internal to the board or to the banks or whatever that they may have to deal with um, in selecting that date. So, for example, October 1st is probably one of the most popular impairment, you know, testing dates that people use for goodwill. And that's because any results of that impairment test won't impact some, you know, companies that potentially are having to do Q3 financials. They don't have to wait for that impairment test to be completed to wrap up their Q3 financials. So that that's a very common one. Other, you know, peer, you know, dates in the fourth quarter of a company's fiscal year is is typically where you see that. Um, you know, other things to kind of keep in mind is that you know, we, we kind of hinted at this, that valuation experts are often assisting a lot of companies um, with their impairment assessments, especially if there's multiple reporting units. So just thinking about the time to involve, you know, whoever's going to be helping to perform the assessment or providing certain aspects of the assessment, just the time um, and investment that they, they can all come and get that completed as well. So you're not, you know, doing it as of 1231 and maybe you've got like an early filing date and all of a sudden you're kind of rushing to get things, you know, at the end of the year. So, um, you know, th those are typical factors that you usually think about. And what if a company for whatever reason wants to change the date they perform their goodwill impairment tests, are they allowed to do that? They can. Um, you don't see it too often. I think maybe you would see it if someone picked a date that wasn't a good date. And I'm <laughs> like, well, why did we do that? Whoops. Um, but yeah, you can change it in certain circumstances. Um, here, though, it is considered a change in accounting principle. So, um, you know, the change has to be preferable. So, you know, you got to be thinking about the preferability of that change. Um, one thing to keep in mind is the SEC actually does not require a preferability letter um, for change in a, you know, an impairment testing date, so long as, you know, the company is, you know, deems that the change is not going to be material and that they disclose the change. Um, so there is some relief there. Um, you got to think about, though, if you are changing the date, is that the change to the new date doesn't all of a sudden make the period between the last impairment test and now the new impairment testing date more than 12 months. Um, so you either have to select a date that's sooner, or if you want to pick a later date, it's often going to require you to have to do two impairment tests in the year of the change. Um, and that's just so you don't end up go exceeding that kind of annual requirement, which would result in kind of non-GAAP application of the standard. So you can, but should you? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you're putting Goodwill on your books for the first time, just be be prudent about, you know, what date you're selecting and just kind of thinking about everything else you have going on and wit, when would an impairment testing exercise be best for you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, you can't well, say never. Yeah. <laughs> we mentioned earlier the qualitative goodwill impairment test. Can we come back to that and can you explain how that qualitative test works? 
Yeah, so all companies have the ability to assess qualitatively um, whether or not goodwill is impaired or not. Um, and, you know, it's sort of similar to like a screen test in a way, you know, screen test that is from the quantitative test, but really, you know, an entity has to conclude whether it's more likely than not that their reporting unit's fair value is less than its carrying amount. So if it is, then the screen test, I shouldn't say screen test, the step zero qualitative test does not, um, you know, doesn't hold up. And so you are going to have to do a quantitative test. Um, if it did, if you went through all that, the exercise of doing that and it, you know, you felt like it wasn't more likely than not that it was going to be, you know, impaired, then, you know, you can stop there. More likely than not. That sounds like a judgment phrase to me. <laughs> <laughs> How does an entity go about making that assessment? Yeah, uh, it is a judgment phrase. Um, <laughs> like most things in the standard, I feel like there's a lot of assumptions and judgments that go in. Um, but you know, there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach um, when thinking about this, but there are, you know, a lot of factors that the guidance does provide that, you know, you know, I guess entities will think about when they're trying to do this evaluation. So it's it's similar to other factors you might see um, when testing other kind of non-financial long-lived assets or real, really it's the same list that if you had to do an interim goodwill test, you know, trying to figure out if there's a trigger, it's the same kind of list there. So, you know, kind of shortcut here. If you had an interim, you know, triggering event test, can you do a step zero? The answer is no, because the factors you're looking at are the same thing. So, mm -hmm. um, but those factors are like macroeconomic conditions. So just like what's going on in the general economy, you know, kind of thinking about 2020, that was a big one for a lot of industries that, you know, downturned in the, the general economy and just, you know, access to capital with, you know, lending and things like that, you know, industry market considerations. So just, you know, maybe changes in increased competition or, um, you know, significant adverse changes in the industry itself. If you think about like airlines, for example, last year, stuff like that, those are other factors you might need to think through, you know, cost factors. If there's been significant increases, if you're in like a manufacturing type industry, so raw materials, labor, other costs that could impact um, earnings or cash flows of the business. Um, your, you know, the entities or the reporting units rather is overall financial performance. So just, you know, negative cash flows, for example, declining cash flows, not meeting budget, you know, things like that could be, could be relevant. Um, other miscellaneous things, you know, if there's been changes in management and key personnel, if there's been significant litigation, uh, potential bankruptcy would be a huge, you know, red flag, things like that. I mean, and some people even, you know, will look at sustained decreases in their share price. So if there's a sustained decrease in the share price, um, and that could be both just, you know, for the share price itself or, you know, relative to its peers in the industry that it operates in, you know, that may also be a suggestion that, um, you know, goodwill potentially could be impaired. So those are the different factors you would assess in that kind of step zero qualitative test. And, after kind of like holistically looking at all the factors that you identified, you know, then stepping back, you mean like, is it more likely than not that the fair value is less than the carrying value? And are there any of those factors that should be weighed more heavily than others? There are. I would say it's not like one is the same that everyone should focus on versus another. You know, it's going to depend on the entity itself. Mm -hmm. um, you really got to think about which factors, you know, are the most likely to drive the fair value of the reporting unit itself. And usually what companies will do is they'll start at like a baseline of like, 
they've done a quantitative test, you know, depending how recent that quantitative test is obviously relevant, but looking at that quantitative test, you know, trying to assess how much cushion they had in there, like, did they pass by a little, did they not pass by a little, um, using that as like the initial benchmark. And then thinking about the fair value that was determined in that quantitative test, what are some qualitative factors that could impact that fair value? You know, identify those then thinking about have there been any events or changes or change in circumstances rather that would alter those factors in a negative way. Um, and if so, evaluating how much you think those have impacted those factors that would then impact the fair value. That tends to be where people focus when they're trying to go through that assessment. But like I said, it's, it's going to vary from entity to entity and it just kind of depends on how much cushion you might have or, you know, how recent your last quantitative test was. So you mentioned that quantitative test performed. I assume that acts as like a benchmark. Mm -hmm. How does any cushion from that analysis come into play when we start thinking about the qualitative test? Yeah, so the cushion, like I said, it's, you know, you, you could look at it this way. If you had significant cushion, then obviously, you know, and, and the test was maybe done in the prior year, for example, you're doing a qualitative test this year, you know, it may be a little more high level than, you know, an entity that maybe had significant cushion, but the test last time they did it was three or four years ago. Maybe they have to do a little more due diligence in assessing some of those qualitative factors. Um, and then on the flip side, if you had a quantitative test and you just snuck by, it may not make sense for you to <laughs> even do a qualitative test because it's going to be really hard to probably support that, you know, the fair value is not more than likely less than the carrying value. Mm -hmm. And so you may just proceed to the quantitative kind of, you know, one step impairment test. How often should management refresh their quantitative test? Yeah, so there's there's no like set answer for this. I mean, some audit firms might tell you there is like they'd expect you to do it after so many years. Um, you know, I think it it depends on the entity itself and the reporting units themselves. Um, just kind of keeping in mind that like the longer you get away from that quantitative test, the less reliable that measurement is going to be and the more support you're going to really have to have for um, the qualitative conclusion. So, you know, if it's been a while, it's probably prudent to do, you know, a quantitative test to just refresh. I would say I tend to see people that even if they have significant cushion, they might do it like every three years. But there is no bright line. Like, you have to do it this way. That, again, the J word comes in here. It's judgment. And, um, you know, you got You just got to think about, like, what does management need to get comfortable with that there isn't an impairment? Because that's what your auditors are going to be asking. And what if a company elects to perform the optional qualitative test? Do they have to perform that test every year? They don't. So there's no requirement that you have to keep doing the qualitative test if you did it one year um, and you don't want to do it the next. You don't have to. So and like I said, you can also do it for certain reporting units and not other reporting units. So maybe there are reporting units with a lot of cushion. They don't have volatile cash flows. They make sense to do qualitative tests. It's quick and easy under those circumstances, whereas, you know, you have a new reporting unit or a reporting unit that doesn't have as much cushion. Um, you know, you probably likely wouldn't use a qualitative test. All right. I'm tired of saying qualitative and quantitative. <laughs> They're too close. Same. <laughs> so I'm going to switch gears to some alternative methods uh, to the traditional goodwill accounting. I know private companies have some relief here in the goodwill space. Jason, will you talk a little bit about 
what that looks like for private companies? Yeah, they definitely do. So I think about private companies, not-for-profits. Um, there are some alternatives that are out there, options that are available um, to really ease the reporting and just the overall burden of everything that Adam just described, right? It is um, time-intensive, sometimes cost-intensive, and so private companies do have the ability to really think about applying these alternatives. There's some things to watch out for that we'll, we'll talk through in a second, but there are there's some optionality there. All right, what are those things to look out for? Yep, so I think the biggest thing is private companies can ultimately elect to amortize goodwill. So rather than doing this annual goodwill impairment test, private companies can say, we're just going to amortize over a period of 10 years or less right. um, the goodwill. Um, that allows them to not have the annual impairment test but they still do have to think about were there any impairment indicators throughout the year that we would still need to assess for as part of, it's very similar to your impairment for long-lived assets. You would still have that process that you'd have to think about. One thing that's important though, if you did have a triggering event, you elected the private company, you're amortizing, you still had a triggering event, you could elect to perform it on an entity-wide level versus each individual reporting unit, which again, for private companies, allows them a little bit relief of relief in terms of the level of effort mm -hmm. that they would have to go through on this. Um, but you would have to make that election around the level of impairment concurrent with the um, other alternative elections as a whole. So that method sounds a lot easier to me. <laughs> Why don't all private entities take that alternative? Yeah, so ultimately a lot of it gets down to what is the exit strategy of the private company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, clearly there are private company elections that you could take, but if you envision going public at some point in the future, you know, a lot of companies who are private equity owned, you know, the private equity firm has a exit strategy in mind, whether that's an IPO or a SPAC, which, is, which has become very popular. In the event that you took one of those exit strategies where you then were subject to the public company reporting, you would actually have to go back and unwind all of that goodwill amortization, um, which can be, you know, both burdensome in terms of level of effort, but also you now have to involve your auditors to look at, you know, backing off that goodwill amortization, recasting your historical financials to reflect incremental goodwill on the books and, you know, less amortization. The other impact that we often see is from a management reporting perspective, that there's certain metrics that you've been assessing the business, EBITDA, operating um, cash flows, operating profit, et cetera, those types of things where you're now recasting historical um, income statements to remove that amortization, you're adjusting those financial, those sets of financial information and that may have an impact from just a management, how do we view the business perspective? Yeah, I would just also add real quickly is, you know, in addition to like backing off the amortization, like they're also gonna have to go back and perform impairment tests in each of the periods that are gonna be presented. Um, so if they are going through that, you know, IPOS one process and they're going to have two or three years of financials, they're going to have to do impairment tests for those periods, which, you know, becomes pretty tricky, mm -hmm. um, especially having to like create cash flow scenarios and involve, you know, coming up with all the assumptions that go in there, involving your evaluation specialist and trying to get that 
without applying the hindsight view that you already have. So it, it's, it's a lot of complication. Yeah, and I think it's important as you're making that election to really have those open dialogues about what is the planned exit strategy? What is the timeline of that? Because yeah. as you said, as you get further away from the you know event that creates the goodwill, it becomes harder and harder to go back and sort of recast, go through those annual impairment tests. So great point, Adam. Yeah, and it's true for any you know, private company election alternative that they may have, not just goodwill. This is what people are always thinking through is that same like exit strategy point. Yeah. Easier on the front end sounds a lot more complicated <laughs> on the back end. Yeah. Um, are there any other developments on goodwill for private entities or not for profits? Yeah. So actually there was just an ASU um, 2021-03. So like just. Just. Pretty like recent. Yeah. Hot that came off the out. presses. <laughs> that allowed private companies, you know, you think about a lot of private companies just have annual reporting. So they don't have quarterly reporting in the same way that public companies report 10 Qs. And so what it allowed you to do is think about monitoring for goodwill impairment. Cause as we talked about, you may get out of, um, you know, having to do that annual impairment, but you still have to assess, you know, and monitor for goodwill impairment. But what this allows you to do is really think about it in the context of at the end of the reporting period, what are there any impairment indicators? So as opposed to looking each quarter, were there impairment indicators? You wait till the end of the year, you look at that end of year, as of that reporting period for the holistic reporting period, are there any indicators of impairment? And so this allows you to not have to monitor as closely some of the events that may have occurred throughout the year that ultimately have been resolved by the end of the year. Makes sense. And I know there's a lot of buzz around the FASB's ongoing technical project for Goodwill. For those that may not be familiar, can you start with an overview of what the scope of that project is about, Adam? Yeah, so this is actually, you know, it's a pretty significant project um, that's going to likely vastly impact and change um, pretty much all entities that have Goodwill sitting on their balance sheet, or at least it, it appears to be trending that way. So. Broadly speaking, the project was essentially established to revisit the subsequent accounting for goodwill and identifiable intangible assets, you know, for all entities out there that have it with the intent to basically improve kind of the decision making information, the usefulness of that information, and also thinking about a lot of the cost benefits. So, you know, a lot of similar things that Jason alluded to when they created the private company alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, they're now looking at that on a broader scale. Um, and it's not just the FASB that's looking at it from a U.S. GAAP perspective. The IASB is also doing a concurrent project um, related to IFRS, so likely also sweeping changes could be coming across you know, both of the major standards. When the FASB opened this up for feedback, what was some of the, the comments they got from the public? Yeah, so there's been a lot of mixed feedback from reporting entities. Um, you know, not surprising. I think people have just suggested that the accounting for goodwill and even like intangible assets for that regard is just too complex. Um, that, you know, the benefits from the information of going through all the exercises really doesn't outweigh the costs that go into performing the impairment tests or, you know, on the intangible asset side, which is also part of the project, you know, valuing those certain intangible assets. Um, you know, so the information isn't meaningful. We're going through all this work. So, you know, does it make sense to keep doing this? Um, and so the FASB, you know, they've done some steps already to try to improve goodwill accounting, but a lot of people said it's not enough. So like, you know, they've already eliminated step two that we talked about earlier here. There's the step zero and assessment you can do. You don't have to do a quantitative assessment. 
you know, Jason just walked through like all the alternatives that private companies have afforded to them. So it's not like the FASB has been ignoring the concerns of people, um, but people are still saying that, hey, we need more. Like this is still a huge lift for us, especially where there's multiple reporting units and we've got a million other things going on. What else can we do? Yeah. Did the FASB provide some alternatives to be considered when they opened this up for comment? Yeah, they did. So there was essentially like three kind of key areas they wanted people to give comment on. So one was like, should it change the requirements for accounting for goodwill? Um, and that's whether it should it change the impairment test and maybe go to an amortization model, similar to what we see with private companies as an option. Um, it also, you know, included in the comments in the project itself was about, you know, recognizing certain intangible assets in a business combination. And then the last kind of piece of it was around the disclosures, both for goodwill and intangible assets. Like, should we change some of the disclosure requirements there? Um, the biggest one I think is obviously like changing the subsequent accounting for goodwill. I think that's going to be huge when you think about like the billions and billions of dollars that are on the balance sheets mm -hmm. of companies around goodwill. Um, and so, you know, they, they kind of proposed a few different models out there to, for people to think about, you know, obviously one is just the current model. You do an impairment model. Um, one is an amortization only model. So you only amortize goodwill over a certain period. And then one is, you know, similar to what they've given private companies, which is an amortization model, but also a trigger based, um, impairment assessment. So those are kind of the alternatives that they wanted to provide people to comment on. Um, I will just say this, the intangible asset matter is also similar to a private company alternative, which basically would allow certain intangible assets in a business combination to be subsumed into goodwill, and then that goodwill would be amortized anyways. It's a bold move opening up for public comment. <laughs> I'm not surprised their feedback has been mixed. Uh, when did they close the comment period, or when does it close? And has there been a consensus on some of the comments they received? Yeah, so it's actually been closed for a while. It closed at kind of the end of 2019, but then I think 2020's disaster <laughs> happened. So they're, um, you know, so it's still in that like review of comment letter phase. Um, I would say like it was a very popular topic, no surprise. Um, there were over 100 comment letters that were issued. You know, audit firms obviously always chime in here, academics, professors, things like that. They had consultants, they had financial statement preparers, they had valuation firms, they had CPA organizations and the like. Everyone was very interested in the topic. Um, and since we're talking about goodwill, you know, I'll probably just highlight, you know, specifically some of the comments that came up related to the possible changes around goodwill. And so I've got a few notes here that couldn't, you know, obviously remember all 100 comment letters. So <laughs> I tried to summarize on my own kind of what I thought were some of the highlights here. So, you know, I would say the majority of the respondents in the 100 that they got disagreed with the impairment only model. So really suggesting we should change that up. Supporters of the current model, though, you know, people that like the impairment model, they, they did argue that it is useful information to the users. They think the benefits of the information outweighs the costs. Um, but it also holds management accountable for decisions they make, you know, businesses they acquire, how they run the company or the reporting unit itself. So, you know, some said, hey, we still think there's a little value there, but the majority said no. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 60% of the respondents or roughly 60% of the respondents who did comment, you know, they were in favor of the amortization model. Um, supporters of that model argue that Goodwill does have a finite life, so it should be amortized. 
Um, the cost relief would be well welcomed, no surprise. And that amortization obviously would reduce impairments because you would just be bringing that goodwill balance down over time. So if you did have to test for impairment, you don't have a larger carrying amount to overcome. Um, a lot of them also supported, you know, the frequency of the impairment set assessments to be trigger based, similar to private companies versus the annual requirements. Um, and then lastly, you know, similar to what Jason alluded to is like testing goodwill if you had to do a trigger based test at a higher level. So not doing a reporting unit test anymore, but maybe entity wide or even if you want to go a level below that, you know, maybe think about um, operating segments or even reportable segments for those that do reportable segments. Sounds like there might be some changes coming down the, the pipeline there. Where does this project stand as of today? Yeah, so it, it does seem changes are coming. When they come, I, I don't know exactly. Um, it's still in its initial deliberations with the board. They have not issued an exposure draft of what a possible standard update might look like. That would likely be the next steps. But um, the board did meet you know, this past summer to discuss the matter. And so they instructed the FASB staff to continue to do more research on it. Um, so, you know, they're focusing on kind of the unit of account for how it should be tested. And so whether it should be reporting unit or a level higher than that, how, you know, the frequency of that and even the timing of it. Um, one thing to keep in mind is when the board did instruct the staff to do that, they said do that in thinking about an amortization type impairment model. Um, so that kind of signals to a lot of people that is the direction that the, the board is ultimately going to go if they were to issue a new ASU as to some type of amortization model. So I think it's important that people really pay attention to this. You know, there, a lot of us have goodwill on the books and, you know, it's going to likely be a huge change in the accounting world. So um, something to definitely watch. Well, I think that's plenty for today's conversation. We covered past, present, and potential future of goodwill. And that's plenty for our listeners to digest. If you'd like to learn more or have any questions about today's discussion, please find Embark on LinkedIn and connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. And Adam and Jason, thank you for being here again, sharing your knowledge and your experience with our listeners. And thank you to our listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.